You're listening to The Feast, where we explore the great meals that made history. I'm your host, Laura Carlson. And if you've been catching our last few episodes, you'll know that we've been spending a little bit of time in the Midwestern United States. First, in the Windy City itself, Chicago, where we talked about the great history of beer in the city of Al Capone with Liz Garibay, founder of the Bruseum. We also talked to Dr. Jennifer Jordan about the history of hops in the Midwest. Her research has taken her north to the great state of Wisconsin, where in the 19th century, hundreds of women worked as hop pickers, moving from farm to farm, harvesting the hop cones that would pave the way for the massive growth of the American beer industry before the year 1900. Now, After all that beer talk, on this episode, we're getting back to food. But don't worry, we'll still be talking about a cocktail or two. But we are staying in the great cheese-filled state of Wisconsin, where we'll be looking at the unique and beloved tradition found throughout the Badger State, the Supper Club. Now, For those of you who aren't from Wisconsin, or haven't had the pleasure of visiting, you may be asking yourself, what on earth is a supper club? Well, there's not exactly a fast or easy answer to that question. Is it a restaurant? Well, yes, in the sense that it has a menu and it serves food and drinks. But is it a club? Well, no, not really, in that you don't have to be a member to go. But Wisconsin supper clubs are all about being social, being part of a community. Supper clubs are about the people you recognize when you get to your favorite spot. Friends you've known all your life. The third generation family that's still running the place after all these years. Supper clubs are often a trip back in time with amazing architecture straight out of the 1950s and 60s, with buildings shaped like giant pyramids or ski lodges or even spaceships. In an era of celebrity chefs, fast casual chains, and meal delivery services available at the touch of a button, it may be hard to imagine an entire state where people drive out of town to go to a pyramid-shaped restaurant to enjoy a nice brandy-based cocktail, relish tray, fried fish, and prime rib. Where the host lets you linger at the bar for hours before even thinking of seating you for dinner. Where you might know everyone in the restaurant, including the owners. Where you might be back in a few days' time to repeat the whole process all over again. This magical world exists, my friends. It exists in the supper clubs of Wisconsin. Now, for many years, the uniqueness of Wisconsin supper clubs flew largely under the radar. Think of it as one giant state secret. You might argue that during the 1950s and 60s, of course, many restaurants across the United States were very similar in style to what I'm describing, with a cocktail lounge out front, a focus on big meals with straightforward fare, largely family-owned and operated. But that era of restaurants has largely faded from view in many parts of the country, except in Wisconsin. And for a while... 
those Dairyland folks were keeping their supper club secret pretty well. Well, the secret might be finally getting out. The supper clubs of Wisconsin have started attracting the attention of foodies, food historians, and even a few copycat restaurants around the United States. You can now find a Wisconsin-esque supper club in Minnesota, one just opened last year in Chicago's Fulton Market, and even the Turks Inn, a Wisconsin supper club once found in Hayward, Wisconsin, reopened in an epicenter of hipsterdom, Bushwick, Brooklyn. When that happens, well, you know you have a dining trend on your hands. If we have to name some of the folks who helped bring the popularity of the supper clubs to a wider national attention, one woman we could not forget to mention is Holly DeRoyter, who produced, directed, and edited the film about this iconic Dairyland dining tradition called Old Fashioned, the story of the Wisconsin Supper Club. The film, which was released in 2015, helped to let the other 49 states plus, of course, the international dining scene, in on the well-kept secret that is the Wisconsin Supper Club, what its history is, and what makes it so unique amongst America's restaurant culture. Late last fall, in 2019, I was able to talk to Holly about her film, and the incredible amount of research into fish fries, relish plates, and brandy Alexanders that went into making it. I reached her in, where else? Wisconsin, to chat a bit about the documentary and why she chose to let the rest of us in on this dining tradition of her home state. My name is Holly D. Ryder. I'm a documentary film producer, and I currently work at PBS Wisconsin in Madison, Wisconsin. I, I learned about you and your work through the fantastic documentary, um, The Old Fashioned, The Story of the Wisconsin Supper Club. And I get the impression just, you know, doing a, a bit of a Google search um, that you are a native of Wisconsin, a Wisconsinite, a Wisconsiner. Yes. Yes. So I'm from the Green Bay area, grew up in Oneida, Wisconsin, and I lived in Wisconsin my whole life and I didn't... Not until I left for college. And that was the first time that I experienced living outside of the great state of Wisconsin. <laughs> but then um, have since moved back? Yep. Yep. I actually have been back in Wisconsin for a year now, working for PBS Wisconsin, and I'm really happy to be back in my home state. When I left, I didn't think much was going to change. You know, I was still in the Midwest, kind of believed the, the lie that people tell us Midwesterns that there's nothing special about us. We're not different. So I didn't think life in Chicago would be that different. It was just going to be a big city. And I got down there and there were no fish fries. Nobody was going out for fish fries on Friday night. I thought that was weird. And then Chicago's known for its extensive dining scene, but they had every type of restaurant, but no supper clubs. And brandy, brandy was not anywhere to be found, <laughs> which is just a staple in Wisconsin. So I started to notice that, huh, there's there's a lot of things about Wisconsin that make it really unique and different. And I st I found myself missing those things. And I, I certainly can understand why I've, um, I'm not from Wisconsin, but I visited Wisconsin. I have some good friends that live over there. And all of the things that you've mentioned, and obviously the supper clubs, the fish fries, the brandy, of course, were things that, you know, I 
I had just never known were a part of Wisconsin culture and such a strong part of Wisconsin culture. I mean, they really were. I mean, I was lucky enough to visit in the summer. So uh, the fish fries were these great things that everyone was outdoors kind of hanging out, um, obviously, on Friday and just having a great time catching up with everyone. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a great way to end the week. And it's never a question if you're going out for fish fry. The question is where you're going out for fish fry. <laughs> it's always a big decision because, you know, you might like one place because they serve potato pancakes with their fish fry and you really like the potato pancakes or you might like the other place because, you know, they serve perch, you know. So um, there's small changes like that that kind of influence on where you want to go for your fish fry. Yes, I can understand. Um, and I mean, would you say the same thing applies to the supper club as well, that, uh, you know, you have your favorite, but then depending on what you're feeling, perhaps for one evening or another evening, you would go to a different supper club because they just feature a different, um, slightly different menu, shall we say? Yes, that's that's totally true. Some supper clubs um, will have more of an ethnic menu, so there might be a German-themed supper club. So they're going to definitely have that surf and turf focused menu with, you know, some beef, you know, some steaks and some seafood, but then they're also going to feature some German dishes. But yeah, it depends. You know, some supper clubs are really known for their prime rib. So if you're in the mood for prime rib, you're going to go there on a Saturday night. So supper clubs, they're all very similar, but they definitely have their those specialty items that they just do extra, extra well. And I feel like I want to talk, obviously, about your your decision to make a documentary celebrating this fantastic dining tradition of Wisconsin. But I I was hoping maybe you could just give for folks who maybe haven't seen the documentary and are not from Wisconsin, kind of just a really short sketch of what you would say defines a supper club. Okay. This is one of the hardest questions that people (laughs) have, is defining a supper club, because in general, they'll have the same skeleton makeup, but they might do things slightly different. But what I look for when I'm looking at a, for a supper club, um, usually only open in the evening for dinner, family owned and operated. So when you're walking through that door, there's a family member either, you know, greeting you as you walk in or behind the bar or in the kitchen. They're usually in rural places. They're definitely still in some cities, but it's more of a destination restaurant. So you often find yourself driving to one. So you got family owned and operated, uh, unique architecture. So a lot of them will have themes that might play off on, like if they're in a, um, Northern Wisconsin, they'll have a log cabin theme, or sometimes they're made more to look like uh, individuals' homes because you're kind of, supper clubs give you this feeling that you're walking into someone's home. So sometimes the architecture might be very simple or it could be very flamboyant to uh, give you that feeling of travel, uh, that feeling that you're going somewhere different. And then the supper clubs, a big important thing about supper clubs is it's not about just dining and dashing. You're there for the evening. So there's a designated bar area and there's a designated dining area. And when you walk into a supper club, you're going to the bar. You're going to sit down. You're going to have a drink. And you're not just going to talk to the people that you came with. You're going to talk to everybody that's around you. Because the supper club is really about um, connecting with other people and, um, you know, celebrating. It's the weekend or maybe you're out celebrating a special occasion. And and then you go out. You have um, your dinner. And a lot of supper clubs, they won't seat you until you request to be seated. Because, again, it's 
falling into that feeling of um, slow, you know, enjoyable night out, no rushing. And then after you get done dining, you often return to the bar and usually have an, excuse me, an ice cream drink, uh, just to cap off your night. And again, more socializing. And a lot of another important part of supper clubs is it's a lot of homemade food. It's family recipes passed down generation to generation. Often if somebody buys a supper club that comes with recipes because it is such a part important part of its makeup. So it's this isn't your typical, you know, uh chain restaurant food experience. It's unique food unique to that restaurant with a homemade touch. Wow, that's um, that's fantastic. And I, I loved um, in the documentary, you do go through um, or one of the, the folks that you interviewed does kind of go through the various menus and kind of varieties of main courses, um, you know, starting, as you said, with a bar. And then there's usually often uh, I, I'm, I might be saying it wrong, but like a relish tray? Yeah, relish tray. Yep. Okay, yeah. And I mean, I'm imagining that is, is like pickles and cheese and... So relish trays are a common thing that you see at supper clubs. Uh, sometimes you do have to request them because they won't bring them out just because they're trying to cut back on food waste. But mm-hmm. a relish tray is typically made up of, you know, select raw vegetables like carrots and celery, maybe some cheese spreads, maybe um, some pickled beets. It all kind of depends on the supper club and what they want to present you. Um, sometimes it's seasonal too. You know, if it's summertime, you might have a cucumber salad in that um, relish tray. Sometimes they're really simple. Sometimes they're more complex. But it, again, it's like supper clubs, they're all very similar. In as the, they're all very similar as they'll have something in common like the relish tray, but it's the that owner's interpretation of the relish tray and what okay. they want to serve that makes it unique. Right, right. And as you were saying, there's a little bit of variety that, you know, they often will fit a very, very general, I don't want to say mold, but let's say they fall under the same umbrella, but obviously subject to variation depending on, as you said, each owner or kind of the um, ambiance they're going for or the style they're going for, that'll have a have a big impact on it. I'd love to talk about, I, I definitely want to come back to the bar, trust me on this one, but I, because I feel like that is going to take us down this wormhole where we're going to be talking about brandy for about 30 minutes. So so before we dive into kind of the drinks and the iconic brandy um, just role that it plays in Wisconsin um, kind of bar culture, um, I was hoping because what I found so fascinating, obviously, I'm a historian. I love the history angle of things. And this certainly has been an institution for many decades in Wisconsin. But I was really fascinated watching your documentary about really the earliest origins of the Supper Club. And I, I hadn't really connected it before in my mind about the influence of prohibition and kind of that transition from tavern culture to kind of speakeasy culture to then kind of the acceptability of drinking culture after prohibition ended, and particularly kind of the acceptance of women in these kinds of institutions. And I was just hoping you might touch on a little bit of that story. Yes, that's that's a really uh, fun story timeline that you just laid out where, um, you know, you have these taverns, but then you have prohibition hit. So then the taverns kind of had to pull people back in. So they started serving food. 
a lot of times that was the fried fish because it was cheap and it was accessible because we're in Wisconsin where there's water everywhere. And then under the table, they would serve their patrons, you know, some, uh, some uh, alcoholic drinks, <laughs> but they had to, but they had to get them in the door. And then um, after prohibition, there were all these speakeasies. You know, they they needed to change with the times. So then they started to serve food along with the alcohol. And then the supper club became a place where women. It was okay for women to come out and drink because before prohibition, women weren't allowed in taverns. It was a place just for men. So with prohibition ending, women were they had gotten used to being able to go out and drink, and the supper club was a place that allowed them them that freedom to come out and be in public and be able to drink because it was seen as a place. It wasn't just seen as a bar; it was seen as a restaurant. Absolutely. Again, it's something that I just never pieced together in my mind. But of course, just by where Wisconsin is, slightly close to, shall we say, Canada during uh, Prohibition, um, which, you know, perhaps made it a little bit easier to access some of that illegal alcohol on the other side of the border. But then, you know, depending on where you were in the state, you might be slightly closer to, say, Chicago, which, of course, has this whole other history of um, like moonshine and illegal um, alcohol buying and selling and speakeasies and all that kind of fun stuff. So it, it does make sense that, you know, there was, shall we say, ample supply if people were interested in getting a drink during Prohibition, um, that speakeasies would be would be a thing in Wisconsin. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Wisconsin was definitely not respecting the, what was it, the 18th Amendment? It was well known in some communities that the um, police officers would turn their eye against, uh, you know, they were okay with people brewing their own beer Mm -hmm. and stuff. They were, it was just, don't sell it kind of thing. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, Wisconsin, I think in the piece we talk about how we're the land, somebody called us the land of the wets. Yeah, and especially with those gangsters coming up um, to Wisconsin, there was no... We were not in short short supply at all. Yeah. And so it does seem that like after Prohibition ends and you have this transition to almost more of like a family friendly, like focused approach to kind of get now women, of course, in, but also whole families into into these institutions for obviously not just a drink, but this whole dining and socializing experience. And I was just wondering, you know, the the supper clubs that you and, and it, like I, I watched the credits and you went to like 30 or 40 supper clubs, it looked like for researching this this documentary. Were they all I mean, did a lot of them date from this like 1940, shall we say, 1950s? Um, or are we are kind of already on the second or third wave of supper clubs? Um, do, do a lot of them date to that kind of first period of transition? Yeah, there definitely was a good handful of them that had been around since that time and they're passed down, you know, generation to generation. So um, there's definitely that. But there is um, especially recently a resurgence and in interest in supper clubs. So there's been a lot of new sub- supper clubs opening that's definitely stick to the traditions, you know, homemade food, family owned and operated, usually only open in the evenings. But, you know, putting a new twist on it, um, you know, focusing on that surf and turf and food, you know, the menu. Um, I mean, what was kind of the, the average 
age of them, shall we say? Um, were most of them kind of 40s and 50s? Or are we looking kind of more institutions that, you know, maybe 80s or 90s? I would say a good handful of them were on their second or th- going on their third generation. So they date they did date back to those early supper club years. But there was also a good number of them that, um, you know, that maybe the family bought them in the 80s or 90s. Uh, a new family might have taken over a supper club. So there was a good variety of supper clubs from different time periods. But there still are a good number of supper clubs that are r- from that original, you know, supper club heyday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, again, as we're talking and... I'm I'm thinking about this whole transition from kind of under the table speakeasy culture um, and then something you already mentioned and you touch on in the documentary as well, the, the ruralness uh, that is a feature of separate clubs. And I'm wondering, do you think, I mean, totally in your own opinion, do you think that this rural element um, or characteristic of a separate club dates from this maybe speakeasy under the table era where, you know, you didn't want to know where the speakeasy was so that maybe the, you know, the the one cop that was going to chase you down for having alcohol, they couldn't find you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It totally was about being outside the city limits. So it always came into question whose jurisdiction was that, you know, who who has um, the authority to go out there and enforce the law. Um, nobody's out there. So it's it was all about being, um, you know, the outskirts of town. You know, you can do what you want then out there. And then the supper club came, you know, was kind of born out of the speakeasy. So it came at the perfect time because right as the supper clubs were kind of emerging from the speakeasies, so was the car culture in America. So people were looking to, you know, take their cars out for a ride in the country. And the supper club made the perfect destination. Yeah, I love that. I you had some great footage in the documentary of you know people getting in uh, you know their their giant Cadillac or their Chevrolet and going out for you know when people still went out for a drive on the weekend that you really had no purpose in driving. It was just for the sheer enjoyment of the drive, and then maybe on the way back or maybe like you know your one destination would be as part of this experience okay, you're going to have a meal and kind of a, a social experience at, at the supper club. Yeah, for sure. And that's definitely something that I think people in Wisconsin still enjoy. People enjoy getting off the main roads, you know, the main highways and getting on the back roads and stumbling upon a supper club they didn't even know existed, you know, and talking to people they've never met. So that's something that I personally even enjoy, it just going for that Sunday drive and seeing where you end up and trying something new. And it seems like, again, I'm not I'm not sure if you, you mentioned this in the documentary, but I'm just thinking about it, is that these are places that don't really need to buy billboards or they're not relying on, you know, social media advertising, that this is still, you know, about a supper club because word of mouth, essentially. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, supper clubs, if they do advertise and only in a local bulletin or you know, that's pretty much it. But a lot of it is word of mouth. They don't they don't need to spend that money in advertising. And I think that is the best kind of advertising. People want to go where, you know, their friends say is a good spot. So but they're just part of the community, too. That's another big thing is a lot of people will have um, meetings. They'll host like, um, you know, uh, lines meetings. You know, different organizations will meet at the supper club. They'll let them use their space for that. 
a lot of people, you know, their major life events rotate at the supper club, you know, uh, bridal showers, dinners post, you know, after a funeral. Uh, a lot of the things are centered around the supper club in the community. And because it's part of the community, there's no need to do all that advertising. Right. And I thought it was such an interesting flexibility in some ways in that, you know, there's a community that may be built up or associated with a specific supper club, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you only can go to this supper club. You certainly are welcome to, you know, go on a, in a different direction on your next, you know, Friday drive or Saturday drive. Um, and that's not seen as, you know, betraying your your one true supper club, that you're you're encouraged to go and, and try out different varieties, shall we say. Oh, yeah. I think everybody expects that. Um, often people will have that one supper club, you know, they find themselves at the most because it might be, you know, closest to where they live or something. But often other supper club owners are in- interested in knowing, you know, hey, did you go check out this other supper club? And they'll talk about it. And um, it's just a very common accepting thing here. There's They're not very competitive. And I think what also I found really interesting, and I think this ties back into, as you were saying, the the rise of the car culture, kind of maybe around the 50s and the 60s, and these becoming destinations unto themselves, that a lot of them seem to still, like the buildings themselves, and you were talking about this earlier, evoke this, there's totally a word for it, but you know, let's just say unique architecture that either, as you were saying, they, they are constructed to look homey, like look like someone's personal home, or they look like, you know, a pyramid or something else entirely that you would not be expecting to find in rural Wisconsin on the side of the road. They A lot of these places are off of roads and they need to catch people's eye. So they're going to have that nice flashy neon sign at the end of their driveway, or they're going to have that really unique architecture that causes you to just be like, what was that? <laughs> I need to go there. That looks like fun. Yeah, I, I would love to know, you know, you mentioned some, but what is your kind of standout supper club architecture that you just thought, well, this is just the wackiest supper club design I have seen yet? Uh, do you want one that's still open or can I talk about ones that have closed? Oh, any of them. I'm just fascinated because I love the idea that there are these you know, pieces of architecture out in Wisconsin that are like, hey, yeah, we're going to build a pyramid and it's going to be a supper club. <laughs> Yep. So that is one, the Pyramid Supper Club that's in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. It is, as far as I know right now, still closed. But that was, you know, a great example of you're driving through the cornfields of Wisconsin. You're like, where is the Supper Club? And then suddenly a pyramid appears (laughs) out of nowhere. So you have ones like that. There's also um, another closed Supper Club. It's no longer a Supper Club, but it is a music venue. It's called The Gobbler. Supper Club and a turkey farmer built that Supper Club. And it is, I want to describe it as spaceship, like a saucer, like a flying saucer shape. And then the windows are kind of like an eye shape. I guess they were designed to look like a turkey's eye. And the inside was decorated with like, there was turkey print on the the carpeting going in. It was very extravagant. Um, If you just Google, um, Gobbler Supper Club, there is a whole website dedicated to the memory of the gobbler because it was so unique and different. <laughs> um, but one that's um, still open, I would say, as far as just having this really fun retro 
uh, look to it is the Hobnob, and that's mm. on Lake Michigan between Racine and Kenosha. And you walk in there, you feel like you've stepped back into the 1960s. <laughs> They've really maintained that building. It's just this great retro feeling. You feel like you're in an episode of Mad Men. Um, so that one, it's not so much a crazy theme, but it just kind of really took hold of that original feeling of the supper club and really invested in it. So that's another great supper club. They've just decided, you know, we're going to preserve this moment, this decade in time and and just not change it. Oh, that's wonderful. I have to ask, um, I know it's closed now, but I don't know if you know, was, I have to imagine, turkey on the menu at the Gobbler? <laughs> it, was a, it was a menu item, yes. <laughs> oh, good. I would have been so disappointed. Like you had this whole like turkey-focused supper club and no turkey on the menu. Okay, that makes me feel a lot better. I feel like, you know, I'm 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 ready to open the big box that is Brandy and um, of course, you you titled the documentary "The Old Fashioned," so I think that that indicates the uh, the prominence, shall we say, of this particular cocktail to the Supper Club institution. And I was hoping maybe to just kick us off, you know, describing the unique twist on what many would consider to be the the classic old fashioned versus a Wisconsin old fashioned, which I feel like may itself be a dangerous thing to say. Uh, what is the classic versus the Wisconsin? Yes. And I like that you noticed the um, title of the film, Old Fashioned, is kind of a play, kind of has double meaning. It's got the, you know, of course, like you mentioned, the old fashioned cocktail, but also the old fashioned feeling of some of these supper clubs. You know, when you go to these supper clubs, it's like going back in time into a different world that no longer no longer exists unless you're at a supper club. <laughs> old fashions, Wisconsin old fashions are uh, pretty unique. We make them with brandy. And then if you ordered one in Wisconsin, they're going to assume you want brandy and then they're going to ask you sweet or sour. And they're referring to the soda mix that you want to go into your old fashioned. So a sweet would often be like a seven up. And then sour is like a sour soda um, or a sour mix. So when you come to Wisconsin and if you order an old fashioned, you're going to get a drink that's nothing like the classic old fashioned cocktail that most people are familiar with. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I remember when I visited my friends in Wisconsin, I got asked that exact question you just mentioned, the sweet or sour, which, of course, I have not ordered many old fashions in my life. But, you know, the I have ordered them enough to not be expecting that question outside of Wisconsin. Um, and so kind of on a whim, I said sour. And I will say, having tasted the sour and then tasting the sweet, I, uh, the sour was a little bit of a shock to the senses. <laughs> I can see why the sweet, I mean, this is personal preference, but I can see why the sweet maybe is the more popular choice. Is one considered older or kind of like associated with more, you know, uh, you know, the baby boomers love the sour, whereas the new kids love the the sweet or have both been equally loved and treasured as far as you know? I think they're... Yeah, it's just I think they're equally loved and treasured. I, I agree with you, though, that I think the sweet complements the brandy a little bit more because brandy is pretty sweet. I think brandy old-fashioned sweet is the more popular one, but there's still definitely, 
good amount of people who like sour. People are getting a little, um, they're experimenting a little bit more with their uh, old fashions. And some people are even moving away from brandy and using bourbon now. Oh, my so goodness. <laughs> there's a small movement of that going oh, no. on. But, Stay you know, strong, Wisconsin. It's a bourbon old-fashioned, but still made the Wisconsin way with the soda added. So, Oh, my goodness. Um, and I feel like this this opens up the box of... You know, and I maybe I, I missed it in the documentary, but why why is brandy, you know, the the go to beverage um, or I should say, you know, alcoholic spirit of Wisconsin? Because, you know, that is something you mentioned in the documentary that I love the story where folks went down to, I think, like Texas or they had moved away from Wisconsin. And they said, well, we needed to bring our brandy with us because no one else has any, which, you know, I have to say is is 100 percent accurate. I have rarely seen, you know, brandy on the bar back of, of many, many a household or a restaurant, except in Wisconsin, which like they must be going through three bottles a night. <laughs> well, a lot of people trace it back to there was a lot of Germans here in Wisconsin and they had they preferred their sweet liquors. And um Corbell particularly is really popular in the state, and they believe that's due to the fact that uh, the World's Fair was in Chicago. I think in I think it was like the 1893 or 18 something around that time period, and a lot of people from Wisconsin went down there, and Corbell had a booth. So there's all these Germans visiting Chicago, and being introduced to this new, more affordable brandy made here in the states. And uh, they started drinking it, and they really liked it. And it just, you know, that's just spread across the state and became a standard here. And just took off. Yeah, because, I mean, it, it, there's certainly, of course, the, the beloved brandy old-fashioned. Um, but, you know, while I was there, you know, brandy popped up in a bunch of different drinks. Again, just not not anything that I had seen before outside of the state. So I know when we were corresponding by email, you know, I mentioned the brandy Alexander, which was something I had never seen before. And I was just wondering, I mean, this is obviously not something that you touched on in the documentary, but, you know, what what is the brandy Alexander for non-Wisconsin residents, shall we say? Well, it's a cream-based cocktail, and it has brandy and cream de cocoa in it. Here in Wisconsin, though, there's a lot of these classic cocktails that were made with cream, but we kind of take it to the next level and make them into ice cream drinks. Mm -hmm. So a Brandy Alexander here in Wisconsin is going to be a vanilla ice cream mixed with the cream de cocoa, brandy. Uh, sometimes they hand mix it. Sometimes they use a blender. And then they pour it in a glass and they, I forget if it's like a, they put coconut on top, I think, or not coconut, sorry, uh, cinnamon, I believe, is sprinkled on top. But there's always a variety of ice cream drinks to choose from when you go to a supper club. My favorite is the pink squirrel, which is pink in color and almond flavored. Oh. And if you ever go to a supper club and you want to order an ice cream drink, you need to ask, how many does one serve? Because some supper clubs will make a more reasonable size <laughs> ice cream drink. Some supper clubs will make an ice cream drink that can be shared by the whole table because they're so big. <laughs> so 
That's always a fun thing. Um, that's, again, another thing with supper clubs is there's always those standard flavors like the Brandy Alexander, the Grasshopper, Pink Squirrel. Those are the, like a handful of the classics. But then some supper clubs, they make their own, you know, flavors and mixed combinations. So that's always mm-hmm. fun when you go to a different supper club. Uh, I went to one one time and they had one called the Nut Roll. And I forget what was in it, but it was delicious. <laughs> I mean, it sounds delicious. I mean, all of these ice cream drinks sound fantastic. Oh, my goodness. Again, it, it makes total sense that in some ways the cream slash ice cream drinks take off in Wisconsin, which is such a huge dairy state, as well as, you know, having the cheese at the very beginning of the meal, kind of coming back to the dairy roots at the end of the meal. Oh, that's wonderful. There's so many things about the Supper Club in Wisconsin that just kind of go together really well. The Supper Club was a dining trend. It was a restaurant style that was across the country. Um, You know, especially after World War II, it really took off. But it's here in Wisconsin where it really took hold. And for a lot of reasons, you know, the fact that um, a lot of people went out to rural areas because of all the rural worlds we had because of the dairy industry and, you know, um, and then just like the tradition, the the speakeasies, you know, easily transitioning into the supper club after that uh, time was over. It just really made it the perfect place for the supper club. Yeah. And it, it has clearly endured and is still a beloved tradition, you know, even though I feel like a lot of those dining elements in other parts of the country have kind of faded away and people have gone towards new food trends or new restaurant trends or new dining trends. I mean, this, you know, every generation, this isn't something that only folks who were born, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago are going to. It still seems like this is a very current um, people who are, you know, 10, 20, 30 are going to because it is still such a such a tradition and such a such a fun one and a beloved one. When I first started making my film, there was not a lot of young patrons at the supper clubs. And a lot of supper club owners were telling me, this is it. We're the end of the line. Basically, their clientele was dying off. And when I, my film came out, it took six years to make. Suddenly, there was this resurgence. In supper clubs, people were interested in supporting uh, family-owned businesses, local uh, businesses, businesses that focused on local food. And so stuff that kind of became trendy, uh, it's what the supper club has always been, you know, local family-owned restaurant. Um, A lot of people, I think, were looking for unique dining experiences, which supper clubs Offer. I think people got a little sick of the chain restaurants and same old, same old that they offered. Uh, so the Supper Club is definitely um, doing a lot better than it was uh, 10 years ago. And it's so funny, right, how food and restaurant trends are cyclical in that way, right? That, you know, here was something that came up in and became popular, you know, as as a restaurant, as opposed to kind of its predecessor, like a speakeasy or tavern, but a restaurant tradition, say 40s, 50s, 60s. And then perhaps there is this concern and maybe the 90s or the early 2000s that, oh, okay, well, trends are changing, times are changing, people are interested in, in something else um, that the Supper Club is worried about its very existence. And yet here we are two decades into the 21st century and the food trends and restaurant trends have come right back around to really prize again a lot of the things that the Supper Club is is offering and has, has always been offering. Yeah, for sure. And a lot of times when I 
go to screenings with this film and I talk to people about this film, I just remind people, this isn't just a restaurant. This is who we are. This is our culture. This represents who we are. So you can't go anywhere else in the world and experience a Wisconsin Supper Club. Um, it's unique to us. And we need to support these institutions and um, make sure that they're going to be here for the next generation. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, that's what I found so uh, unexpected and like really lovely about visiting Wisconsin because, you know, I'm, I, tr- I travel all over and a lot of times, you know, you go to these places and it's it's the same restaurants, it's the same chains, it's the same kind of giant parking lots, it's the same kind of big stores. Um, and so things kind of start to blend together after a while. And when I got to Wisconsin, there there ended up being this entire dining tradition that, you know, was not just for the tourists and it wasn't, you know, this kind of invented thing. This was still a very prized tradition, you know, that went beyond just like one community or one town or one even little area. It was it seemed like throughout the state, really. Oh, yeah. Supper clubs are definitely throughout the whole state of Wisconsin. Uh, the ones that have fared the best are definitely in the more touristy areas because then it becomes a big part of people's traditions when they go up north. You know, they go to their certain supper clubs. I mean, one question I, I wanted to ask, and this this kind of touches on what we've been talking about, is that they in some ways have remained very true to their traditions. But I feel like you you mention a bit of this in the film, but that there are some small elements of of change or that, you know, that reflect that we're in 2019 or 2020 versus, you know, 1955 or 1960. Like, is there any one trend or any one thing that you've seen in your your very vast exploration of supper clubs that you're seeing like more supper clubs start to adopt or start to kind of develop as a as a new thing in their in their uh, institution I guess um are are there changes afoot in the supper club world I think there are some slight changes for sure. Um, I think what's unique about supper clubs is that they find a way to like stick to those bare bone um, things that make them a supper club. So the fact that, um, you know, it's a lot of um, fish, you know, surf and turf on the menu. I, I was at a supper club in Rhinelander, Wisconsin. It was called Three Coins. And they had a red curry shrimp dish on the menu. So you got that, you know, seafood element in there, but then they're bringing in some, you know, different ways of preparing that, you know, a curry, which mm. you would never have seen. <laughs> <laughs> so there's different um, little things like that where people are looking at their menu. They're sticking to the, the, the traditional foods, but modernizing them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are taking into account that, uh, you know, offering lighter fare because, uh, you know, we aren't eating as much beef, especially <laughs> as we used mm-hmm. to. So um, a lot of supper clubs are uh, adding things to the menu to um, appeal to people who have different diets or who are looking to um, maybe step away from that heavy beef and seafood menu. That was our discussion with filmmaker Holly DeRyder, who wrote and directed Old Fashioned, the story of the Wisconsin Supper Club. 
Of course, I highly recommend if you get the chance to see the film, which you can buy a DVD copy or even stream online via the film's website at oldfashionedthemovie.com. And on the site, you can also sign up for the film's Supper Club newsletter, where you can find out about current Supper Club events and news. We'll also put up some pictures of some of the great architecture, interiors, and menus of Wisconsin Supper Clubs at our website, thefeastpodcast.org, where you can also learn more about Holly and her recent work. A big thank you, of course, to Holly for talking to me and sharing her vast knowledge about the great state of Wisconsin's Supper Clubs. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Our digital director and photographer is Mike Port. Music by Blue Dot Sessions and Josh Bartman. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Feast underscore podcast, where we'll put up some extra images from our travels and discoveries about food history, including, of course, about some of the Wisconsin Supper Clubs we mentioned today. You can also find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at thefeastpodcast.org. We'll be back in two weeks' time with another great meal that made history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.